Hi, this is Ivarianax, and welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. As part of my research for my latest book, Adobe Photoshop Masterclass, I must have scoured hundreds, if not thousands, of different photographers' websites in a search for the photographers that I was going to showcase in this book. And it was it was a, a bigger challenge than I had expected, because even though I saw a lot of great photographs that had some amazing technical ability, uh, a lot of the images that I would see on these sites kind of left me hollow. And I found that the images that resonated with me most were images that had a sense of narrative or, or story, or that posed a question in terms of what's going on? Who is this person? What is the scene? The work of today's guest, Brooke Shaden, exemplifies that. She's very similar to a photographer I interviewed a few years back, uh, Natalie Dibish. They both came up as self-taught photographers who used themselves as their own models to create these oftentimes fantastical images that create these sort of moody, sometimes dark, but beautiful imagery. And within a very short time, both Brooke and Natalie have created quite the market for their work. They're also educators and they teach workshops all over the world. But today's guest, Brooke Shaden, I think is a real wonderful example of a dedication to one's own personal vision and seeing it through, not just from the concept to that final print, but seeing it through all the way to creating an audience and a market for her work and just being absolutely committed to making it happen. And I hope that she is a great source of inspiration for you. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Brooke Shaden. This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace. Now, if you're a photographer whose images have just been collecting dust on some hard drive somewhere, and you've been meaning to create a website to showcase your work, well, now is a great time to do it. Because Squarespace has this real beautiful and intuitive website platform that allows anyone to easily create professional web pages, blogs, online stores, and galleries all on a single platform. You simply start with one of Squarespace's award-winning designs, and you add your images, you add your content, anything you like to sell online, then connect your social networks, and you'll have a website that looks great on virtually every device. All Squarespace accounts come with this award-winning 24-7 support, as well as cloud hosting and real-time analytics. So if you sign up for a year, they even give you a free domain name. Now, whether you're a creative professional, a business owner, or a blogger, Squarespace makes it easy to bring your ideas to life. And don't be intimidated if you know nothing about website design. It doesn't matter because Squarespace makes it fast and easy to use. It has these beautiful templates that are 100% drag and drop. There's a new page builder tool called the Layout Engine that enables you to customize pages in seconds by simply adding blocks of content such as photos, video, text, social media content, and immediately preview that layout as you go. That makes it easier for anyone to build a site. Start your website for free today at squarespace.com forward slash candid frame. It's a free account. No credit card is required. Just try it out and start building your website today. Then if you decide to purchase it, use the offer code candid frame two and get 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, including monthly and annual plans. That's squarespace.com and use the offer code candid frame two. Everything you need to create an exceptional website. 
Well, Brooke, welcome to The Candid Frame. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm super excited, too. I was so pleased that I could uh, include you in that, in, in that latest book uh, that, uh, that we just released. It's, uh, it was a really wonderful opportunity to showcase the diversity of, of, of exciting work that's being done there. And yours is certainly uh, one of those that I was really eager in, uh, to include there. And I was so pleased that uh, you agreed to it. Um, Thank you so much. You know, in looking at your work and in, in doing my research, it seems that story plays a real big part in what interests you creatively. And before we get into your photography, I was wondering where that comes from. Is Did that come from a, a love of reading, of, 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 of movies, or where exactly does that passion for story come from? Yeah, it comes for me from a love of writing mostly. I grew up um, always with a pen in my hand and wanting to write stories. That has always inspired any of the art that I've done. So I started out writing and then uh, moved on to filmmaking. And that for me was a big leap, but it made sense because it was, you know, a real true way of, of storytelling in every sense where I could write the story and then tell it visually. And from there, I moved on to photography and it just sort of translated naturally again where um, I could capture an entire story in one frame. And that's something that excites me because I've never been very good at writing very long stories, but I've been good at sort of compacting a story and putting a lot of meaning into one little small tidbit. Yeah, you've talked about how symbolism plays a big part in, in your work. Yes. And, and why do you think it's important that things not be so spelled out? Because, you know, we, we live in a culture where everyone wants to have everything very clean and tidy. And your images suggest a lot of sort of mystery, a lot yes. of these unanswered questions that exist there. And, and what excites you about, about that? Well, I think that everybody's greatest tool is their imagination. And there are a lot of people who don't really, you know, exercise that all the time. And so by creating imagery where everything isn't spelled out, and there is a lot of symbolism packed into it, that means that I'm sort of forcing the viewers to work their imagination and figure out what it means to them personally. So while I do put a lot of, you know, meaning that I see that I feel into my work, I still intend for there to be more to it. And so when I share my work online or with others, that's sort of an invitation to use your imagination and get whatever you want out of it. Yeah. The word that I was looking for was uncertainty, because I think that that's what I kind of like about your images, because the images make you really want to linger on them to sort of figure out who this person is, what's happening, what's what's the story, basically. Oh, good. And, and you know, you refer to your images as being dark. And I think that dark is something that we kind of recognize when we see it. But mm -hmm. if you didn't have the sort of the benefit of the, of the images to just show people, what do you mean if you can put, put it into words? What does dark mean to you? Darkness to me is, is what somebody is afraid to confront in themselves. So, you know, if there's an image that I'm creating that has a, a dark concept to it, then what I'm really trying to say is that there's something in this picture that you might be afraid of, that you might be uncomfortable with, that that's something that you just don't normally, you know, deal with on a daily basis. And so that to me is darkness. And that's why I love photographing it, because I can always pair that with something beautiful or something more lighthearted. And that sort of counterbalances it and uh, makes it accessible to more people. Yeah, I think you strike a wonderful balance between that and just creating beautiful imagery. Thank um, you. 
you know, you can take a lot, you can pick pictures that are very pretty, but they kind of leave you hollow. You just kind of move on to the next thing. And you're right. really able to get people to stop and really linger there on the, on the photographs. And, and not everyone can do that. And you've been really effective in being able to do that in so many of your, your photographs. How much time do you have to dedicate to some of these images? Because I know that oftentimes shooting on location, you're working with models, then you're yeah. having to produce all these different layers. But from start to finish, from the concept to the final photograph, I know it can vary, but uh, can you give us some insight into what that process is like and how long it typically takes? Absolutely. Lately, I've been spending a lot more time in the pre-production phases where I've been really thinking a lot about the concept and how to make it as special as I possibly can. So I've been spending anywhere from, you know, a day to a week and sometimes months coming up with concepts. Uh, I've been shooting a lot of pictures lately that I thought of six months ago, and it's I'm just now getting around to, you know, finally having the sets built or the model ready or, you know, things like that. So that can can take quite a long time, but I usually dedicate at, at least a few hours per picture of just visualizing it, writing out a description of what I want the shot to look like, maybe uh, drawing a picture of it or making a mood board. And then from there, I move on to shooting. And sh the actual shoot itself is very, very quick for me. I usually only you know spend time with my camera for about five minutes. Leading up to the shoot, getting there and, and setting up can take a few hours. So I, I did a shoot yesterday, actually, where I rented a U-Haul truck and picked up a set that somebody built and then drove it to the ocean at dawn. And, and the whole thing took, you know, like a full day to, to finish up. But shooting was only about five pictures and maybe 30 seconds. So the shoot is usually the, the fastest part. And then from there, editing can be upwards of 30 to 40 hours if it's a really intense edit. I never spend less than two hours on a single picture because I feel like I just need to put more time into it and really sit with it for a little while. So I always wait overnight to release a picture. Hmm. How is that different from when you first started? Because when you first started, you were doing largely self-portrait. So, mm -hmm. you know, you don't have to wrangle with a model in that case because you, you just have your yourself to work with. But th that was certainly, a, I'm sure, a learning process, both in terms of what you were doing behind and in front of the camera. But, Absolutely. But tell us about, you know, those early explorations in, in terms of, you know, finding your voice as a photographer. When I first started, it, it was a little different from what I do now. Um, not terribly different, but just a little bit based on the fact that I've felt compelled to create far more often. So I was shooting every single day, doing a self-portrait every day, maybe not releasing all of them, but certainly shooting every day. And so the turnaround time was much shorter. I would spend less time editing, less time planning. And it was a little bit easier then because I was new to it all. So I was learning and failing and I was okay with that. All the concepts were fresh. So, you know, it was all new to me. Whereas now I, I take a lot more time in just making sure that every little detail is perfect. And, and back then it was much more of a learning curve. But about self-portraiture, I mean, it's something that I still do. I do about 50% of my images as self-portraits now. I, it taught me a ton about directing models and um, just what it's like to be on the other side of the camera. Because I find that since I've been doing self-portraits, I can much more easily direct the model when it comes time to shoot because I know what it's like to be there. So I know little ways of directing people to get them into the pose that I need. Tell me about some of those insights that you that you got. What what, what exactly did you learn and, and how have you applied it to, to working with models? Yeah. 
Well, uh, for example, one, one more practical example is that um, I would do uh, a lot of self-portraits with some skin showing. And I realized that there were two types of ways to pose where you could be relaxed or you could have all of your muscles tensed. And so oftentimes if a model is posing and it doesn't quite seem to have the right impact, I'll tell them to tighten their back muscles as much as they can. And that will give them a more powerful pose. And so it's little things like that, that, you know, if I hadn't done it myself, then I wouldn't know to tell them to tense those muscles. But because I did, I understand what to tell them. Mm. So when you, when you have a, a real clarity in terms of what your vision is, how, how important is that to communicate to the people that you're working with, not just the model, but anyone else, you know, say like a, a designer or, or an assistant there, you know, what kind of time do you dedicate to communicating what you're going for to them? And, and, and what role does that play in you being able to pull off the image? Yeah. Well, you know, um, I have a little bit of a problem with being bossy. So I tend to, um, <laughs> I tend to sort of let everybody know right off the bat that this is my vision and I'm probably not going to stray from it very much. So I'll show whoever I'm working with a sketch and I'll show them a description of, of what I've written based on what the picture will look like. And I'll let them know this is my vision. And if you want to, you know, give suggestions, I'm happy to hear, but that most likely it will look exactly like I'm describing to you in the end. So I, I sort of just let people know right away, this is this is how the shoot's going to go. This is what I need to have done. And then if you want to give input, I'm more than happy to hear it. And I think for me, that's been the best way to work because when I give somebody else too much control, then I'm disappointed with the image in the end, just because it doesn't fit what I had in mind, mm. not because it necessarily was better or worse, just because it wasn't what I thought of. And so I've realized that the best way to avoid disappointment is to just be honest and upfront and share my vision as much as I can. If I'm working with, say, a designer who I've been working with one recently, I tell her explicitly every little detail of what I'm looking for. And then I give her the artistic freedom to create those designs, you know, in a way that she can use for herself as well. So that's sort of been the process. Well, when you started uh, with your photography, you were share sharing a lot online. I think it was primarily through Flickr. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So tell me about that because a lot of people put their images on there, but it isn't necessarily conducive to learning much of anything other mm -hmm. than, you know, getting people's reactions as whether they like it or they, they don't like it. Right. What role did posting your images on Flickr play for you as, as, as you developed as a photographer? Well, when I started sharing on Flickr, I sort of did it with no preconceived notions of what would happen, what it is, what it does. I just knew that you could upload pictures and that you could sort of interact with people. So I started to share my pictures and then I started to, you know, get a few comments here and there. And I always welcomed sort of open and honest criticism. And I always found that to be very helpful for the most part, because even if somebody was writing a comment that was super, super nice or super mean, at least it let me know that they were feeling something. And mm. that's what's important to me is not, you know, do you love this image or do you hate it? It's just, do you feel something at all? And so I started to realize that people were responding and people were commenting and, you know, um, favoriting my images and and that was very encouraging to me. And so it was basically through Flickr that I decided to pursue photography full time because of that encouragement. So I kind of owe Flickr my career in a way. Well, you, I've interviewed Nat Natalie Dibbs. She has a similar sort of story to you mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, creating images and learning photography largely from self-portraiture and then eventually launching out into a bigger career. But I know that you and several other photographers are sort of creating a community amongst yourselves, even though it was virtual. How important was that 
to what you were doing and, and where you've come. Yeah, um, I I always think that community is one of the best things that we can have on the internet because if you're not part of a community, then it's sort of like a big sea that you can get lost in. And I've always wanted to create a community where people can feel encouraged and inspired to create no matter what it is. So for me, finding that community was a place where I could grow and I could feel encouraged. And then hopefully I could sort of give that back to them and, and make other people, you know, feel encouraged as well. Tell me about the, the relationships, though, that you, that you built there. Because a lot of people want to have that sort of connection because they feel like, well, photography for a large part is a pretty isolated experience for the most part. Mm-hmm. Unless, of course, you're, you know, collaborating with people on a regular basis. So since, you know, you're primarily self-taught, how did these relationships sort of help guide you in terms of what you're doing? Because you, you commented that people's reactions to your photographs sort of encourage you to, to try to make it a go as a professional. But, I'm sort of trying to tap into how did being able to dialogue with other people who shared that same interest, had the same passion, who are dedicated to you, help you in terms of what you've been able to achieve? Um, it's interesting you brought up Natalie because um, she has proved to be an amazing friend and such a great artist. And so, you know, it's through people like her who I met through Flickr. Um, that has not only encouraged me, but also taught me a lot um, about the business of photography and just watching other people, how they social network, how they sort of conduct themselves online has been really fascinating to me. I found those relationships to be very, very productive in figuring out how I was going to create uh, my own business around photography and how I was going to continue to share that online. Uh, Beyond that, you know, beyond doing collaborations with people and getting to know people more personally, the the internet Flickr and Facebook and everything has sort of opened up a community where I can share products with them as well. And I don't mean to sound businessy in that way, but it's true in that, you know, everybody who follows your photography is also a potential client. So it's opened up a world where I can advertise advertise, you know, that I sell prints or that I sell workshop spaces. And, you know, those are the people who are buying them. So it it went from just people who encourage me to people who now support me monetarily at, at the same time. So it was one of the ways that you first started off in terms of monetizing your work was through the selling of prints? Yes. When I started uh, photography, I guess it was a few months into it, um, I started getting requests for print sales. And this is a pretty common thing in the, at least in the fine art community where, you know, you, you might sell prints through Redbubble or a site like that and uh, make some money from it. So I was working at that time um, at a film production company in Los Angeles and I was friends with a lawyer there and she advised me not to start selling prints that were sort of open edition. So instead I was going to start selling limited edition prints. And that was really good advice because once I finally, a year later, got my business off the ground, I started selling with galleries. And so I was doing limited edition prints. And um, that's how I started to make a little bit of money. Although in truth, for the whole first year of my business, I didn't make any money. It was just um, editioning my prints, trying to sell my prints, but mostly just paying to create the prints. (laughs) So how did you build this relationship with, with the galleries? Were they finding out about you? Were you making sort of an active push to make them aware of your work? How did, how did that work out for you? Well, I think that there's this sort of myth that galleries will just come knocking on your door all of a sudden if you do great work. And that is just not the case most of the time because the galleries 
can't keep track of everybody on the internet that they find. So, so I started going to galleries and asking them if they wanted to have an exhibition. The first time that I emailed galleries, I sent out about a hundred emails to different galleries and I didn't hear anything back the first time. And I was really disappointed about it and I couldn't understand why nobody would at least, you know, send back something saying, Oh, sorry, we're not interested. And then I just realized it's just the business of it. You know, people have you know, they have um, time to spend on other things. So uh, I started sending out more personalized emails and um, emails specifying what I wanted and why I wanted it and who I was. And uh, and then I started getting some responses back. And I had my first show um, with a gallery that I had written to. I went in, had a meeting with them, and they looked at my portfolio. And they basically said, we only like one picture from your portfolio. Can you create a series based on this one picture? And that's where I started um, learning about how to create a series, how important that is for a gallery, how to print my images, how to frame, things like that. Wow. Wow. That was quite a learning curve. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and what, what, what surprised you in terms of being able to assign a monetary value to your work? Because that's one of the things that a lot of people feel in, intimidated by. It's like, okay, how yeah. much do I price this at? Or, you know, when they start getting people, you know, saying that they want to purchase the work and they give them a number, it's, it's sort of a, a mixed bag. You're excited about it, but then you're not no, you don't know whether that's sort of fair. Yeah. You know what definitely. I mean? So how did you sort of negotiate all that, that stuff? Did you have help primarily from sort of the gallery uh, owners in terms of assessing that or? Yeah. Um, the first gallery that I was with, I, I basically said to them, I have never sold prints before. I don't know how to price my prints. And so I said, what could you sell them for? And that turned out to be a really important question that I still use today is just asking the gallery that you're with, what do you think you will make a sale? You know, what number is going to work for you? So that gallery sort of, you know, let me know what they thought they could sell at, what price range. And then they said to me, well, how much work did you put into this? You know, how many hours did it take you to get the shot? How long did you edit it for? How um, how much is the print going to cost you? Things like that. And when you start adding all of that up, if you're really paying yourself for your time that you put into it, then you know the price really does start to build, and you start to realize that your print is probably worth a lot more than you know maybe the hundred dollars that it took you to print it. So I started learning that. And what I also learned a little bit further into it is that if you raise your prices, more people are going to come buy your prints. And it's a really, really funny thing to say because most people assume that you have to keep your prices down for people to be interested. But I started showing with a gallery who represents me called the Joanne Artman Gallery. She basically said, you know, I can't sell your prints for this amount. It has to be more because my clientele wants to feel like they're buying something very special. They want it to be, you know, a higher price point because it, that means that it that um, it's a really special piece of art. So she ended up almost doubling my print prices and then I doubled my sales when we when that happened. So you know it's a learning curve and I think that at the beginning when you're starting out it's good to you know price a little bit lower than you might want to maybe mm -hmm. um, or at that price that you're looking at and then moving on from there and sort of raising your prices as you go. Yeah. Going back to the idea of self-portraiture, photographers are notorious for never wanting to be in front of the camera Yes, for a variety of different reasons because of the way they look, body image issues, blah, 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 blah. And I don't care if you're a man or a woman or you're young or you're old, it's that sort of self-consciousness pervades all of us, especially nowadays. Yes. How much of that was a challenge for you in terms of using yourself as your creative fodder? You know... It 
It's interesting. I've never, I've, I've always hated having my picture taken when somebody else was taking it. And it wasn't because I cared how I looked. I just did not enjoy the process of it, of being in front of the camera and, oh, having to look this way or that way. But when I started self-portraiture, it was very easy for me because I could delete a picture if I didn't like it, or I could try again, or, you know, I had full control over what I was doing. But I've always been very, very fortunate in that I really haven't cared how I look on in a camera. So, you know, if I'm creating a picture and um, I don't know, maybe my arm looks too fat one day or something crazy like that, then it, it never bothered me in a personal way. It was always just what should the character look like? And am I portraying her the right way? That was more of a big deal for me was figuring out how I could really transform myself into a character rather than just looking like I was taking a gratuitous picture of myself. Mm -hmm. Did you feel any vulnerability in terms of putting those images online? Because it just seems like the nature of, of a lot of these sort of communities that, that sometimes the comments uh, have very little to do with the you know, with the photographs and it becomes yeah. quickly very, very personal. So did you have any sort of trepidation in terms of, of putting the work out there? Yeah, um, I thought about it a little bit. And I thought, you know, what if somebody says something negative about who I am or the way that I look or, or whatever it may be. But then I started realizing that if somebody has something negative to say that isn't constructive, then it's really not worth listening to in the first place. And I've always been of the attitude that if you're going to share your work online, then you have to be willing to hear the good and the bad um, and the you know overly nice or the really mean. And there's really no place for me to say that somebody doesn't deserve to make that comment because I'm putting it out there. It's what, you know, I'm doing um, what I do and I'm sharing it. And if somebody likes it, that's great. If not, that's fine too. So I've always just sort of had that opinion that, you know, if, if I clearly have not done anything to upset somebody and they're upset anyways, then that's not my problem and I'm not going to worry about it. Oh, amen to that. <laughs> <laughs> you teach workshops. So a lot of people have come to you in order to sort of learn some of your approaches and, and your technique and, and you're a self-avowed non-techie. Yes. You know, so people can't come to you ex expecting they'll learn all this technical stuff about cameras and Photoshop. I mean, you share Correct. based on your own personal experience in terms of creating your, your images. What do you feel these people are, are, are coming to you for? What is it about what you're doing that really draws them? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what I've heard from people because I think that might make it a little bit clearer. And what I hear are two different things, two main things that um, are reasons why people take my workshop. And one is, is the technical side because I do go through my entire process from start to finish. I don't leave anything out of, of what I do. People are coming to figure out how to make their pictures more believable. That's something that I hear a lot is, you know, um, maybe I've, they've figured out how to make a person look like they're flying, but it doesn't look real to them. And they want to know how to take it to that next level, you know, tips and tricks to make it, you know, really stand out. So that's something that, you know, people say, oh, I need to learn levitation or I need to learn how to um, change colors in Photoshop. So there are a lot of people who come for the technical reasons and I will give that information very freely. So there's that. But a lot of people end up leaving saying that, you know, I came for the technicals, but I left with the inspiration and the knowledge that I can create whatever I want with these new tools. And so I think that that's the other reason is that it ends up being a very open place for people to share. And I do a lot of inspiration exercises with people. And, and basically, I just try to drive home the idea that everybody has a personal style that they can figure out how to hone in on and really develop. And this workshop is sort of that stepping stone to getting there and understanding your voice and your unique perspective as a photographer. 
You you recently did a workshop in India. Yes. And I'm wondering how that experience uh, was for you. And was it was it very much different from, you know, the workshops that you've done in the States? Yeah, well, I was in India. I was working um, with two organizations. One is called Blossomy and the other is called Kolkata Shanbed. And they both work with survivors of human trafficking. So instead of it being a normal workshop where people, you know, pay me, sign up, and then I teach them, I was going to do um, charity work. And I was teaching some of the girls that uh, got, went through this program of uh, being survivors of human trafficking. Basically, I did a four-day workshop with them focused on self-portraiture and and I took their pictures, um, levitation pictures and things like that. And so it was sort of a, a mishmash of storytelling and self-portraiture. And what I found to be very interesting was that all of the people that I dealt with there were extraordinarily in tune with my images. Uh, they saw them for the first time on the first day of the workshop and they could all give almost instantly um, very, very in-depth explanations of how they saw my images. And it was, it was very interesting and um, really captivating to hear. And so we ended up doing self-portraiture. The first thing that I noticed was that the group of girls that I had were the most joyous people I've ever come across. And uh, they just had so much energy and so much insight into photography, even though they had never touched a camera before. So their self-portraits were, were very expressive and very meaningful. And I mean, they packed more symbolism in there than I think most people do in their photography career. So it was it was really special to see. Well, let's talk about that. That's a very interesting uh, observation to make. I guess we can end up being very Johnny one note, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of what we're trying to say with, with the images and, yeah. and that sometimes, sometimes you can have several different ideas sort of mashed up together. And it's kind of like striking a chord on a piano on a guitar. You can have several notes playing at the same time, but have them come together really nicely. Um, yeah. How does, how does that idea sort of translate to your own photography? Did you start thinking about your own work slightly differently as a result of that experience? Yeah, I did. And it, it just sort of opened my eyes to the fact that, you know, I, I felt at that point like I had been um, creating images that were true to who I was and that I was putting a lot into them. And then it, it sort of turned that on its head and made me realize that, you know, I could be putting so much more into it when I opened myself up to putting my feelings and my emotions into what I'm doing at the same time. Mm -hmm. Because I'm very much a person who works very methodically where I don't really put my emotion or how I'm feeling on a particular day into my picture. Um, it's all stuff that I'm just thinking of in my imagination. And what I saw in India was that the girls that I was teaching were doing both. They were making up these very, very elaborate and amazing stories, but then putting their past and their emotion into it. And it made for very powerful images. Wow. That's kind of fascinating um, in terms of just being able to introduce that sort of rawness to work. Yeah. And I think that a lot of the work that I see out there is like very technically polished, but it yes. left me cold. When I was taking a look at all those hundreds of different photographers for, for this book project, that's what I often experienced. I would see images and I'd go, yeah, they're technically just perfect, but they didn't resonate with me. And the wonder about it is that there's no one way to just get there. I mean, everyone's practicing different techniques, using different subject matter, but I felt like almost inevitably everyone was sort of tapping into something very, very personal and mm -hmm. having it manifest itself in, in the photograph. How are you helping yourself sort of stay 
connected to that place because it's really easy to fall back to your kind of default. You know personally that you could go a little further, but sometimes it's you just slip back into into old methods. So how do you sort of insist on, on pushing yourself and keeping yourself in that that place, which can be uncomfortable, but creates work that's just can be even better than anything you've created before. Yeah. Well, I find that if I am sharing pictures online and I share too many in a row where I'm not nervous to hear the reaction, then that means that I am not pushing myself enough. And I start to realize then that I haven't really recently done anything lately that has made me scared or made Mm. me upset or made me frustrated. And if I haven't, then I'm not learning new things. I'm not pushing myself enough. And then I find that I just get bored with what I'm doing. And I never want to feel boredom ever. So this year, especially, I've been pushing myself in a ton of different ways and some are unexpected. For example, I haven't been sharing as many images um, on the internet and the fear there is always, well, people want more and more and more. And if you don't give it, then will they continue to follow you? And so I've been just taking a step back and creating at a, a much slower pace and creating images that I'm extremely proud of, but that I might not release as many of. And I've been dealing a lot with my fears as well, where I used to almost never work with a team. And this year I've been working with a team of people a little bit and just seeing how it works for me, seeing if I like it or not, letting other people have a little bit of control when when I'm shooting. And on top of that, I've been addressing my fears very literally, where I've been doing sort of dangerous (laughs) shoots in the ocean because I'm scared of the ocean and things like that. So I've tried to push myself a little bit. Can you give me an example of one of the images that you felt like sort of embodied what you were just speaking of in terms of pushing yourself about having some discomfort in terms of creating the images and sharing it and and what that process was like for you to to make a, a that particular photograph? Yeah, um, there's one that I did very recently that's called The Tide That Takes Us. And it's a picture of a girl coming out of the ocean holding onto um, a rope and that rope is attached to a ship that's floating in the sky. And that was one of the first pictures that I did for a new series that I'm working on titled Fears and Fairy Tales. And that series is very personal to me. It's directly addressing the fears that I have and translating that into a photograph. So as I mentioned, I'm very afraid of the ocean. And I decided to do a picture in the ocean where I shot underwater, above water, and at several different locations to put the image together. And in order to do so, I had to use my um, Icolite underwater housing and uh, basically sit down in the ocean and let the waves just pummel me as I was trying to get these pictures. And it was terrifying to me. But at the same time, I was so proud of the image in the end that it, it made me want to go back and do it again. And I think the more that I can do something like that, the more I'll overcome those fears. Wow, that's awesome. I was taking a look at that picture. It's a stunning, stunning image. Thank you. So as you go out there and you, because you've been photographing for a relatively short, short period of time. Mm-hmm. So you've managed to pack in a, a quite amount of, of stuff in terms of learning, in terms of marking yourself, and really sort of creating an awareness of, of your work. Where are you hoping to take it in, in the near future? Well, in the future, I, there are a couple of goals that I really want to accomplish. And they're varied. I want to keep teaching because teaching is a big passion of mine. I've always, my whole life, thought that I would be a teacher. And so now I can finally say that I am. So I want to make sure that I can continue to travel with my workshops and open them up to more people. I really hope to exhibit in more galleries and a little bit more internationally. That would be something that that I'll be working towards this year is contacting more galleries and just sort of getting my name out there in that way. 
a little bit more. And I really want to do more charity work. That's something that is extremely important to me, even more so now that I've gone on my first trip abroad to try to help others in, in any way that I can. So I have some really great fun things planned for sort of the end of the year where I'll be going back to India and working more with those organizations. And I hope to expand that beyond India as well. Before, we, before we're done, I want to ask you about prints because mm-hmm. like you said, you, you exhibit your prints and, and they're sold mm-hmm. and you came up in, in a generation where photography was digital. You make the pictures mm-hmm. and they get posted online. Talk to me about the process of learning to print and, and then coming to the understanding of the importance of that image on paper and how it made a difference in terms of how you saw your own photography. Well, when I uh, started printing, that was the first time that I had seen a picture in print of mine. It was always just on the internet. And the first time that you see a picture of yours in print, I think for most photographers is a very special moment because it becomes real. You know, it's not just a file that you can click through online. It's something that you have to hold in your hands. And you start to realize that, you know, it's more than, than just something that you see for 20 seconds and you get rid of. It forces you to look at it a little bit longer and take your time with it. And that's why I love printing my images so much and exhibiting them because, you know, I'll I'll see somebody looking at my picture online and then, you know, five seconds maybe, and then they're done and they move on. But at an exhibition, you see people standing there staring at them for a very long time in comparison. And you realize that they're looking at them in a way that's much more analytical than, than they normally would on the internet where they see hundreds of thousands of pictures. So that was a really important realization. And the reason why I love exhibiting my print so much. But then technically, I started realizing the importance of creating a really nice file to print. So I started realizing that if I, for example, took multiple pictures and put them together, my pixel count would be much larger and I could print much larger. So I started changing the way that I took pictures as well, where I would uh, take a picture of a model and then take a picture of her surroundings. So then I could add all those pictures together and it would print much larger. Yeah, because I noticed that in a lot of your, your earlier pictures, I think they're fairly straight forward. I mean, you were, when you first started out or for a large part of your uh, your photographic life, you were just using like a camera and a single lens mm-hmm. and then photo- photographing a scene and then sort of working with it in Photoshop. And then I see in some of the descriptions that you've had on your blogs about how intensive the process is in terms of collecting all these elements and then bringing them all together. Yeah. Um, do you find that that really helps you in terms of being able to find that vision onto that final photograph? Yeah, definitely. Whenever I plan my pictures, I sort of have two categories for them where one category includes the more straightforward images where I know I can just go out and shoot on location, be finished with it very quickly, and then take it home and edit. But then there's the other category that requires me to go out and collect little bits and pieces that I need for the image. For example, I might need a certain stormy sky that I'm going to put in, or I might need... Um, I mean, it could be any number of things, but I might need to collect vines to bring to the set or something like that. And so that helps me get motivated, actually, in that I know that I don't have what I need yet, and it's not accessible to me very easily. And that's why I know the picture will be even more special in the end. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is that I ask them to recommend a single photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? 
for me, it would have to be Gregory Crudson because he has been probably my biggest inspiration ever since the beginning of my photography. And what I've learned from him is that, well, to give you some background, he does very, very cinematic photographs uh, shot on a large format film camera. And he'll spend weeks putting together these very, very elaborate sets. And then he'll just click a single image and that's it. I love that process. I love that he knows what he wants before he clicks the camera. That to me is the, is the biggest inspiration for me. I, I love shooting with intent. I love going into a shoot knowing exactly what I want it to look like. And so I think that a lot of different people can draw inspiration from him. And where can people go to find out more about you and your work and your workshops? Uh, brookshaden.com is my website and that has information about workshops and a link to my blog and links to my social networking sites and all that fun stuff. Great. Well, thank you so much, Brooke. It was a pleasure to, a to talk to you. I really appreciate it. The Candid Frame is supported by donations from people just like you. You can help support the work we do here by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com and contributing using PayPal. You can also support the show by writing a review in the iTunes Music Store or by adding a link to the podcast on your website or blog. The editor for this show is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.